whenever you find the genuine, you will find somebody promoting a counterfeit. Even experts have been fooled by forgeries, by fakes, by counterfeits, by substitutes. Henry Ward Beecher was right when he said, a lie always needs a truth for a handle to it. And so as the gospel began to spread among the Gentiles in the first century, a counterfeit gospel sprung up alongside. This gospel, if we can call it that, was a mixture of law and grace. The proponents of this false gospel was people that we have come to call Judaizers. And the Apostle Paul opposed them in his ministry, both in his personal contact with people and in his writings. He wrote about them to the Galatians, and they're referred to several times in the letter that we're studying, the letter of 2 Corinthians. Here was their major emphasis. Salvation is by faith in Christ plus keeping the Old Testament law. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to study the passage in 2 Corinthians this morning so we understand what Paul is dealing with in the context in which he dealt with that. And then we'll step back and we'll take a look and talk about what does that mean for us today. Essentially, what these people were teaching is that a person is perfected in faith by obeying the law of Moses. Now, their gospel of legalism was very popular even in that day as it is all throughout church history. And I think one of the reasons as I think about it is because it appeals to our human nature. It puts the emphasis on something that you do, human achievement, something that, that, that has to do with conforming to an external standard. It's always easy to deal with something you can see, not always unseen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says that the teachers, these false teachers, peddled the word of God. And as I mentioned last week, that word refers to the practice of those who adulterated their products. They sold cheap goods, passing them off as something that they weren't in order to get gain for it. And so Paul is saying that what these false teachers were doing was merchandising the gospel. And, and they were promoting their reputations. And so they arrived in Corinth with letters of commendation. Now, that was very common in that day, a very common practice for people to go to a new area and have letters of commendation. And so they had their credentials. Uh, and, and what they did is that they pointed out that Paul didn't have such credentials. You see, he must be a false apostle because he doesn't have these letters of commendation. And so Paul is going to say to them, listen, I don't need any letters of commendation because I have you. I have the Corinthian believers. I have this congregation of believers, this community of faith that are really my letters of commendation. So let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you grab a Bible in front of you there, page 1226, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's going to lay out his defense with this aspect of what we're looking at about having these letters of commendation. And so he begins his defense with this, is that they, the people that were of the community of faith in the Corinthian church, were a letter written on his heart. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? 
Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Well, Paul had a letter of recommendation, but it wasn't a document that he was carrying around in a pouch or in a briefcase. His letter was the Corinthians themselves. These were people into whom he had poured his life. Uh, this is an open letter for all to see and all to read. They were all inscribed on his heart. And once again, we see Paul's pastoral heart coming out, his love and his affection for these that he's been involved in ministering to. And then he says that they were a letter from Christ. Look at the beginning of verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Uh, Paul shifts his attention from the Corinthians' relationship with him to their relationship with Christ. This congregation of believers, he says, was a letter from Christ. They were the fruit of Paul's ministry. They, they were evidence of, of, of his influence in their lives. Now, that being true, there's none that he would say other than Christ, who was the author of their salvation. And Jesus himself had inscribed this letter. And then he adds a third thing. He says they were a letter written with the Spirit, the end of verse 3. It says that God delivered us written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so Paul says, listen, as Christ's letter, you were written with the Spirit, with the, with the living word and the, by the living God. What happened in Corinthians, it had this life-changing experience that was brought about by the Spirit of God. And he says, this is my letter of recommendation to you. I suspect as Paul's writing these words, he has in mind what Jeremiah the prophet spoke of when he talked about a new covenant. And so look at this from Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the word of God was written by the Spirit of God under their hearts. This is the letter of recommendation that Paul says he has. This is the basis of his credentials. Having said that, he goes on to express his confidence then. Verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, or not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And Paul comes back to a theme that he started with, and he's going to go all the way through this letter, and it is that his sufficiency was from God. His confidence was from God. Think of Paul. He's a brilliant man. He, he's well-educated. He's an exceptional thinker and debater. He's just this amazing person. But he didn't depend upon his adequacy. He recognized that in the realm of the Spirit, it was only of God that he could do that. You see, the legalists told people that the way to become spiritual was to follow the law, to obey the law. You know what? You think about this. Legalistic ministries tend to inflate people's egos because it's all based on what you do on human achievement. 
And so what you have people thinking is, wow, look how good I am. Isn't God lucky to have me on his team? I mean, look how gifted I am. Look how I can obey all the rules. Look how I can check all the boxes. That's what legalism does. On the other hand, when you emphasize grace, you have to tell people that they're sinners. People have to know that there's nothing that they can do to gain the things of God or to maintain a relationship with God. It is by God's wonderful grace, his free favor that he gives to us. Desperate people have no way to fix themselves. Only God can do that by his grace. Now, Paul, in this letter, comes to the heart of this chapter. It's the heart of his appeal to those that were being swayed by these false apostles, these legalistic teachers. And what he's going to do, he's going to contrast the old covenant with the new covenant, the covenant of law and the covenant of grace. Now, Paul does not deny the glory of the Old Testament law. Uh, in, In the giving of the law and the maintaining of the tabernacle and temple services, there clearly was glory. But what he says, though, is that the glory of the new covenant is far more superior to the glory of the old. And he makes his claims this way. First, he says the new covenant glory is life not death. Look at verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Do you remember the story? We've got to go back in our minds to the Old Testament when Moses is up on the mountain and he meets with God. And as he meets with God and has a glimpse of God's glory, some of that glory is, 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 is attached to his face. His, his face absorbs some of that radiant glory of the Godhead, and so it glowed with the glory of God. And so when he came down from the mountain, this made quite an impression on the people. But but Paul argues that if there was glory in the giving of the law, which resulted in death, because no one can stand before the glory of God, how much more glory is there in a ministry that brings life? We should be more caught up, Paul is saying, with that which produces life, which is glorious. Paul often is dealing with, with what the law could not do. And so, for example, he writes to the Galatians, and he lists several things that the law could not do. For example, the law could not justify a lost sinner. The law could not give a sinner righteousness. The law could not give the Holy Spirit. The law could not give an inheritance. The law could not give life. The law could not give freedom. All those wonderful things. Listen, the glory of the law, Paul says, is a glory of death. This is a devastating argument against those who said that law obedience was necessary for spiritual growth and maturity. The second thing that Paul says about this is that the new covenant glory is righteousness, not condemnation. Look at verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. 
Now think about this. What was the purpose of the law in the first place? It was to show the standard of God, which was righteousness. This is righteousness. So that then people would look at the law and they would realize how far short they fell. It was used to turn people to God, not to bring about righteousness. In fact, the end, Paul says, of the law is condemnation, and justifiably so. But Paul says that the ministry of the new covenant produces righteousness. It changes lives to the glory of God. Let's look at a couple other passages that Paul deals with this. Turn back two books, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. There's so much about the theme of righteousness in the book of Romans. It's just all over the pages of this letter. And look at Romans chapter 8. It begins with one of the greatest verses that we've got, I think, in the New Testament that deal with us as we put our faith in Christ. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, Paul's just talked about to the Corinthians that the ministry of the law is condemnation. But now Paul says, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, if you have trusted in Christ and you wrestle with whether you're truly you know, saved, whether you've got eternal life coming, go to verses like this. You've got to wrestle with this then. You've got to put this in and figure it out. No condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the reason why the word for introduces it. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The law demands, it requires righteousness and yet it cannot deliver that. So God does what the law could not do. It doesn't throw out the law. It fulfills the law in us. Let's look at another passage. Go past 2 Corinthians to the book of Galatians. Again, a lot about the theme of the law and righteousness and justification in the book of Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 2. And I'm going to start reading at verse 15. And Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Paul always has, reminds people, you know, that he's come from where they are, um, particularly, obviously, to the Jews that are hearing and reading these letters. Yet we know that a person is not justified. Remember, the word justified means to be declared righteous. That's all I mean. It means to be declared to be in the right. So we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's a pretty serious thing, isn't it? What the law can't do, we know what the law can't do. We've got to go back to what God did by his grace. And Paul makes the point in Romans 7 that the law is good. It's spiritual. It's holy. But his purpose was never to produce righteousness. Why? Because it cannot. It's incapable of doing that. Its purpose was to reveal God's standard so that people would understand their need for a Savior. And God in his grace then delivers on that. And so the the Old Testament law, the glory of that is diminishing. It's going away in light of the new covenant, the covenant of grace. There's no comparison, Paul says. Then there's a third thing, and that's that the new covenant glory is permanent, not temporary. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and look at verse 11. Paul says, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, it's very important to look at that verb tense there. Uh, is being brought to an end, if what was being brought to an end. Remember, Paul's writing at a time of overlapping ages. And the age of the law is now starting to overlap here. It's overlapping with the age of grace. We still have the temple. We still have temple services going on. We still have the practice of the Jewish religion in obeying the law as it was given. But that's all changed in A.D. 70, when Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed by the Romans. And you've now done away with Jewish services and Jewish ministry of that. But what the Judaizers wanted the Corinthians to do was to go back under the law, to mix these two covenants. But Paul says, why go back to something that is temporary, whose glory is fading, it's going away, it's not permanent And so he's urging them to live in the glory of the new covenant. The glory of the law is the glory of past history. Well, the glory of the new covenant is the glory of present experience. And Paul's having to drive this point home to these people because they're being led astray. The old covenant, Paul says, is death. It's condemnation. It's temporary. As opposed to the new covenant that is life righteousness. It's permanent. Why would anyone, why should anyone want to live under the old covenant? Now, Paul goes on to talk more about Moses. Moses really becomes a key person here. And and let me just read the verses, and then we're going to go back, pick out a few things. Uh, So I'm in 2 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 12. Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. 
But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What Paul's doing in these verses is contrasting the fading glory of the old covenant with the surpassing glory of the new covenant. The old order was temporary. And we see clear evidence when Moses received the law on the mountain. So when he's in the presence of God, his face absorbed and then radiated the glory of God. But when he went down to the people, he would put a veil over his face so that they wouldn't see that glory fading. It was still an external thing there. Um, And so the glory of the old order, of the old relationship between God and man was a fading glory. Now, the revelation that came to Moses was true. The problem was it wasn't complete. It's only complete when Jesus comes on the scene fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies and introduces and ushers in the new covenant, the covenant of grace. The writer of the book of Hebrews, and the the, the book of Hebrews is so interesting because it's so so much tied to the Old Testament. It's showing how all of these things that were foreshadowed in the old are now fulfilled in the new. And so the writer of Hebrews speaking about the ministry of priests in the Old Testament comparing to the ministry of Jesus in the new writes this, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Back in chapter 3, the author observes, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Paul gives such a vivid description of the spiritual condition of the people of his day. He said that that their their minds were hardened. It's like it was set in stone. And their present condition, Paul says, is that a veil lies over their heart. Their spiritual eyes are blinded so that they cannot see the truth of their own Messiah. When they read their own scriptures, they cannot see how Jesus was the promised Messiah. And the solution, Paul says, the only solution is to turn to the Lord. And he says, when you do that, that veil is taken away. I think there's quite a picture, isn't it, of when we come to faith in Christ. So often spiritual things, they don't make sense. The Bible is meaningless as you read it. But when you come to faith in Christ and to believe in Christ as Savior, it's like that veil is lifted 
And all of a sudden, your eyes are open and you see, you understand truth. See, apart from that, there's no hope. And that's the reality of the false teachers that Paul's calling out in this section of his letter. But Paul says, listen, what my ministry, a ministry of the new covenant has produced, it brings about two tremendous benefits. Number one, it brings freedom. It brings freedom. Look at verse 17. Paul says, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Here's a bold declaration that the Holy Spirit is divine. He's God. But the Judaizers who had invaded the Corinthian church were depending on the law to change lives. But Paul says the only thing that can change lives is the Holy Spirit. The law, all it can do is to bring bondage, but the Spirit brings freedom. And those who turn to Christ experience spiritual liberty. The iron chains of guilt are removed. And when that happens... There is now the ability, the capacity to love and serve God and serve others. See, the freedom that he's talking about isn't the license to do anything you want to do. You're not set free to simply run amok. Uh, It is the power to do what pleases God. Paul sums up the purpose of Christian freedom in Galatians 5.13 when he writes, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Freedom. Now here's the second thing that this ministry of the new covenant of grace brings, a ministry of the Spirit, and that is transformation. Look at verse 18 again. Paul says, But we all with unveiled face, Remember, the veil is taken away in Christ with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. All of us who turn to the Lord are made free by the Spirit, and then in Him we can perceive Christ, the Christ of the gospel. And unlike Moses, our our faces are never veiled. The veil has been taken away. And as Moses radiated God's glory, as as he faced the Lord face to face, but in an external way, now the Spirit of God comes to live within you, so now the glory of the Lord lives in you. I don't know about you this morning, but that's a crazy thought. That's a crazy thought. Why? Well, we know ourselves. We know the gunk that's in our lives. We we know that the choices that we make and the sins that we commit. But to think the Holy Spirit lives within us. And what he wants to do is begin to change your life so that the glory of God that's resident within begins to come out. Where does it come out? It comes out in your character. It comes out in your conduct. It comes out in your countenance. The glory is no longer external, it's now internal. And that's what we need to see as our lives are then changed by the Spirit. Transformation is an inside job. It's a change that's produced by the Holy Spirit in us as we grow in Christ, as we trust Him in our lives. That's totally different than simply conforming to external standards by keeping a bunch of rules. The glory of the law faded away, but the glory of God's grace continues to grow in our lives. 
So we need to be reminded of how powerful that new covenant is. God wants his children to obey, not because of an external code, but because of internal character. We as Christians do not live under the law, but it doesn't mean that we are lawless. It doesn't mean that obedience doesn't have its place. The Spirit of God writes the Word of God on our hearts. And then we obey our Father because of the new life that He's put within us. So what does it all mean for us? I haven't seen any Judaizers around Knollwood lately. I haven't seen them coming in and talking about this same stuff. So does this mean anything for us? Well, I think it's this. The overarching caution is that we should not see doing things as either a means of securing God's love and favor or maintaining God's love and favor. It's a lot more subtle than I think it was in Corinth. And this is where we can fall into the trap. We begin to think that there are things that we do to get or to keep God's favor. And the danger is then we start focusing on all these external do's and don'ts and we miss what's going on on the inside. Transformation is an inside job. I, I don't know, it's always easier to focus on the seen as opposed to the unseen. It's always easier to follow a set of rules than it is to trust God with the things in our lives, isn't it? It's so much easier if somebody just gives me a list of the 10 things I've got to do, and I'll do them. God comes alongside and says, no, I want you to just trust me. Would you grow in grace? Would you grow in your trust? Would you allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life? That seems to me to be so much more difficult. Um, here's the other danger. We take those same expectations, and then we start putting them on other people. And we begin to take our set of rules that we think you should have to follow in order to be spiritual, in order to grow spiritually, and then we say then everybody else better start doing those same things. And what does it do? It becomes a basis for judging others. And so we put that standard out there. Now, I think a lot of the things that we've fallen into the trap of are, are the gray areas of lifestyle practices. You know, when I was growing up, it tended to be things like, you know, playing cards. You couldn't use playing cards. Why? Because they were used for gambling. But all of us good Lutherans, we had rook, you know. So we could, so we could play. I can hear there's a few Lutherans in the group here. So, so we, could, we could play cards, but they just couldn't be playing cards because they were used for gambling. Or going to movies. Uh, couldn't go to movies. Um, dancing, oh, no, that was out. You know, there, there are all these things that, that were things that some of us that grew up, we know well. It maybe it's changed a little bit now in the world of evangelicalism. Maybe it's things like um, the kind of music you listen to. It's the style of worship that you have. Uh, it's the type of Bible study that you do. It's the amount of time you spend in prayer or in a quiet time. And, and so we, we think that somehow doing those things, that that's what gives us favor with God. And what happens is we're always then in our mind, are always working towards God's love and toward his favor by doing all those things. But what God says, listen, you have my love. You have my favor. Now I want you to do those things from my love, from my favor. 
So now you're going to obey me not because you have to, it's because you want to. It's because of what God is doing in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit changing your life. Now I want to obey him. When I look at all that he's done for me, that's what drives me then to want to do what pleases him. It's subtle, isn't it? But there really is a massive difference in those two perspectives. With the Apostle Paul, we need to focus on a ministry of grace, on the glory of the new covenant. You know, again, it doesn't mean obedience doesn't have a place in our life, but we're doing it for the right reason. And we're obeying as an outgrowth, as an overflow of life in the Spirit of God in the place of grace. See, that's grace giving. That's grace living. That's spirit-filled living. That's what God wants for us. That's freedom. It's transformation. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the freedom and transformation that comes because of living in grace. Lord, we've come from so many different backgrounds. We've come out of a lot of religious backgrounds, some of which really promote guilt, that promote law. And we need to be set free from that. Not that we would become lawless people, but that we would do obedience for the right reason. So would you help us, Lord, to understand how free we are in Christ? Would you help us understand how wonderful grace is? Would you help us to understand how amazing spirit-filled living is? And then would you be at work in our hearts such that our lives accurately and honestly reflect the glory of Christ because he lives within us through the Holy Spirit? And that in our conduct and in our character and in our countenance, people would see Christ. And Lord, would you be at work in us to do your work for Christ's sake. And in his name I pray, amen.